Hi, Vicky. Hi, Shane. Are you a campfire kind of person? Campfire person. Campfire yeah, I love person. a campfire. Yeah? Yeah. Any any fond memories of a campfire or anything that brings to mind when you when you smell that kind of good good words wood smoke? I, wood smoke. Wood smoke is a weird phrase. Anyways, campfires. Wood smoke. Um yeah, no, I like campfires. We had we have a big fire pit in my backyard. Oh. So I feel like I haven't gone camping, traditional camping in a really long time, but we have this fire pit and as soon as it gets cold, it's every weekend we have a fire. It's really fun. Yeah, we actually, um, so we're, as you know, I'm getting married very soon. I know. Uh, and we added a solo stove to our registry. Do you know what a solo stove is? No, what is that? It's this, I, I honestly don't know if it's a gimmick or it's great, um, but it's a stove, it's a campfire stove, but it, uh, it is designed, it's steel, it's designed so that there's no smoke. Basically the smoke gets re or dissipated away so it's supposed to be smokeless i don't know it's neat but, but it's yes out, it's outdoors. outdoors yeah it's a big steel cylinder so will you not smell like campfire you won't have that so that's in theory yeah which i i frankly i love the smell of campfire smoke um i actually have not campfire but my parents mm-hmm. uh so my parents both retired, but my dad retired, I don't know how many years ago, he got really bored because he was retired. My parents <laughs> live in the country on rural Pennsylvania. And he took <laughs> up the the hobby of chopping wood. They bought a wood furnace. Their house is now heated by a wood furnace. Some of us have oil, natural gas, whatever it is, okay. they have wood. So not a wood burning stove, a wood furnace. furnace. Is this different? This, okay. I mean, it's, they're the same idea. It's Similar just on concept. a bigger capacity. Okay. Uh, and he has chopped and stacked miles of wood probably. Uh, and every time we go back to my parents' house, their house smells like campfire. Oh. And so some people love that. Yeah. Some people do not. But I can always tell when I've gone back back home uh, to where I grew up that, yeah, it's for for days and depending on when I wear things, mm-hmm. there's sometimes it's a month later and I pull out something that I took back to their place. Yeah. And it still smells like that very strong, I don't know, that 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 wood smoke smell. So it's very, it's very nice oh, for me, actually. That's a nice, a nice wood smoke campfire memory. That's I do nice. I do what I can, trying to bring us all up. Oh. Science is fascinating. But don't just take my word for it. Join us as we hear stories from scientists for everyone. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Vicki Thompson. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. All right. So we know that I love the smell of wood smoke, but wood smoke has earned a negative reputation, uh, especially because it just hangs over the Pacific Northwest and across the U.S. as forest burn. Um, and as a as an East Coaster looking in from the outside, these fires seem to be a lot more frequent and more devastating. But I wonder, is that actually the case? Hmm. And so today we're hearing from producer Jessica Buser-Young about Pacific Northwest fire ecology. Hi, Jessica. Hi, Shane. So what did you find out about, I'm just going to say PNW from here on out, just because it's easier. Uh, what did you find out about PNW fires? Honestly, how complicated the interactions are between the fire and the forest. 
There are so many factors that can change how forest fires burn, and it's something you could honestly dedicate your whole career to, much like the Forest Service researcher, Matthew Riley. So I imagine that it's research like this that helps communities not only understand risks involved with fires, but also how we can use our past experiences to understand our future, fire future, in terms of climate change. Exactly. Matthew is an expert in PNW fire history and fire ecology. He's currently applying his lifelong knowledge to understand how forests respond to fires and, of course, what the broader implications are for biodiversity and ecology. Great. Let's get into it. My name is Matthew Riley, and I work for the USDA Forest Service, the Pacific Northwest Research Station here in Corvallis. And I work with the Western Wildlands Environmental Threat Assessment Center, which is part of part of the big picture there. Great. So how did you get into this work? Well, you know, I guess growing up, I grew up in Massachusetts in kind of a rural community, and my mother sent me to all these nature day, cam- day camps and things like that during mm-hmm. the summer. And then, you know, initially when I went to college, I wanted to study marine science and um, all the physical oceanography and organismal biology was a little bit of a, a turnoff to me. And I had, <laughs> let's see, I had read this book called Woods Woman, Mm-hmm. by uh, Anne LaBastille, who was, uh, I think she was an ornithologist. And just this really neat book about um, her living in this cabin in the Adirondacks and mm-hmm. really focused on sort of her observations and um, really just sort of got me into a- ecology as a whole. And I ended up transferring as an undergraduate to the University of Vermont and studying forestry and natural resources. Great. So what led you to Oregon, of all places? I moved to Oregon in 2010. I had been working in the southeastern United States, mm-hmm. did my master's degree at the University of Georgia. And, you know, really I was drawn out here by the big trees and the old growth <laughs> forests and the spectacular landscapes. Um, I love to ski. The skiing mm-hmm. is much better in, in Oregon than in Georgia. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, I've just sort of fallen in love with with the landscapes and there's there's just so much to see and, mm-hmm. and to study. That's so great. So, you know, as a forest ecologist, do you spend a lot of time out in forests, out in the field? You know, not as much as I would like to. Uh. Um, but yeah, before coming back to do to do the PhD, I, I spent a lot of years working in the field doing plant surveys and things like that all over the southeastern United States. And these days I <laughs> get out in the field opportunistically when I can. Yeah. So. Oh, for sure. What was one of your most favorite times out in the field? I, gee... You know, I've worked in a lot of different places, back east and out west, and I I really had this foundational experience. After I transferred to the University of Vermont, I took a year off and spent a year living in this old-growth bottomland hardwood and (laughs) cypress swamp in South Carolina. Oh, wow. And so I was... I was out there living in this cabin by myself on the edge of the swamp, and I did an undergraduate thesis, and we were studying... Uh, the response of the the floodplain forests mm-hmm. to Hurricane Hugo, which had gone through about maybe 18 years before. Wow. So, yeah, a really neat chance to learn about doing field work and old growth forests and really how disturbances like hurricanes and, and fire change our forests. Mm-hmm. 
one of my first field experiences as a researcher had to do with forest ecology. Yeah? Do you have fond memories of that? <laughs> no. No? <laughs> no. I, I was looking at disturbances, but not due to hurricanes or, or fire, but actually deer. Um, awful, pervasive, white-tailed deer. Oh. Yeah. I was literally out there sitting on the forest floor, counting the number of flowers to see how much the deer were eating. Um, it took me a a very long time after that to really appreciate plants again. That actually sounds kind of meditative. It was not. <laughs> and, and younger me was not in a meditative state, no. to say the least. Well, so sticking with non-deer disturbances, we are going to focus on the PNW in our discussion today. So in terms of forest fire ecology, I was wondering what has the PNW experienced historically? And so I asked Matthew to describe the area. Well, it really depends where you are. It's a very diverse region, very um, climatically and biophysically diverse. You know, we have these coastal, mesic, wet, temperate rainforests along the coast. And then, you know, these subalpine forests on the Cascade Crest. And then as you go down onto the east side, it, it really dries out. There's this in incredible transition. So we go from these really moist forests um, to these dry forests. And so there's, um, you know, a summer drought and temperature mm -hmm. and productivity, how quickly forests grow. Those are all really important. Humans have such a great impact on the forest fire ecology that we've seen historically and even today. Um, what if humans didn't exist here? What would the forest ecology look like then? I think there would certainly be a lot more fire. Really? Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the, you know, these we live in a fire-prone region. Mm -hmm. um, some of the historical firework that I've been fortunate to have been part of is... You know, the area where the bootleg fire was last year, mm -hmm. um, this one fire history, they had 80,000 acre fires every 10 years. It's wow. an incredible amount of burning. Yeah, mm -hmm. very, very high frequency, um, very, very large fails, uh, fires in some of those landscapes where there's few barriers to stop fire spread. Mm -hmm. And so I think we really, you know, fire managers do a tremendous job in, in putting fires out. Um, mm -hmm. Something like 99% of all ignitions are extinguished, and it's a really necessary part of, of living with fire today. Um, and, you know, inevitably we hear about those, those big fires that do escape and, and mm -hmm. have really, really significant impacts. But the number of fires that they're effective at um, putting out is really astonishing. So I'm hearing that fires are generally snuffed out before they grow very large. Prescribed fires are a, a great management tool. You know, in these cases, sometimes they enable managers to, to put fire down under, you know, relatively safe conditions where they can meet management goals. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the amount of fire here in the Pacific Northwest, especially on the east side, was really at, at great, great spatial scales, large fires and, and very frequent. And so it it really is a great tool mm -hmm. for, for managers who are looking to do restoration or control fuels or foster biodiversity, depending where you are. Right. So, as you've said, the PNW is very fire prone. So how do these fires typically start? So, of course, we have lightning here in the Pacific Northwest, which is a, an important source of ignition. Um, but there are also Native Americans here for thousands of years that practice some really extensive tribal burning practices 
whether it be to manage the vegetation for food, food or other resources. Mm -hmm. um, there were people out there that were, were starting fires here in the Willamette Valley um, mm -hmm. prior to all these Douglas firs that we see today. It was primarily a, a white oak woodland. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, very, very frequent. We don't have a lot of lightning here, mm -hmm. right? And so, um, yeah, places like Northern California, very important, the east side, and, and even on the west side here, things like huckleberries were really important, tribal resources, and mm -hmm. so a very important of, of ignition on the landscape um, that really has been excluded, mm -hmm. you know, with, with European colonization and, and fire exclusion. So what is fire exclusion? Well, fire exclusion is essentially, you know, the, the putting out of, of fires and natural fire starts. And so it's it's really been going on for probably over a century, depending on where you are. And, mm -hmm. you know, initially fire was was misunderstood as an important ecological process. So we've seen, you know, the east side is a, is a great example where some of these forests have missed four, five, six, seven fire cycles. And in the absence of that, what you've seen are increased densities. So mm -hmm. more trees, more smaller trees, uh, shifts in composition. Mm -hmm. So different species, you see these fire tolerant, white fir, grand fir moving in um, mm -hmm. and really changing the, the structure of those forests. And so historically, when there was frequent fire in those forests, they would have controlled fuels and killed small trees here and there and left mm -hmm. the large trees, the big ponderosa pines, as the backbone of the forest. But when you remove that, it allows everything to grow in. And so, you know, fuels are more continuous going from the ground to the canopy. So fires can get up into the canopy. And if you mm -hmm. look out at on an aerial photo, you can see that canopies across landscapes are also more contiguous, and so fire can move e more easily through those through those landscapes. Vicky and I are on the East Coast. Actually, we're in the same room together, sitting very close to one <laughs> another. Yes, <laughs> pre-pandemic clothes. Oh my goodness. Uh, but Jessica, you're in the PNW. So what what has that been like? Well, these fuel sources seem to really set the table for large fires we see here in the PNW, especially the 2020 fires. As ash was literally falling from the sky for several days, it felt really surreal, surreal and a little terrifying. Um, I still find ash in my house and at work sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I know we even got remnants of smoke like out here. I mean, how far it traveled was just wild. Yeah, it's really easy to feel extreme climate anxiety during times like these. I agree, especially something so explicit like extreme fires. It makes me wonder if the 2020 fires was a catastrophic climate catastrophe, or perhaps there were other historical PNW fires of the same magnitude. Sure. So most of, you know, what we know about historical fires on the west side at this point has really come from observations during the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. And so 1902 was a big year, the Yakult burn and the Columbia burn in southwest Washington. And, uh, mm -hmm. um, you know, on the west side of, of Mount Hood, those were very, very large fires on the scale of, of 2020. Uh, the Tillamook burns mm -hmm. in the 30s, 40s, and 50s were also similar fires. Uh, 
similar wind events, similar seasonality. And so one of the, the interesting thing about the Tillamook burns was that there was a, a series of reburns mm-hmm. out there. I think every six years until the early 50s, there was another fire, some of them very large. And so it's it's an interesting thing to think about these these moist old growth forests that even during drought, mm-hmm. you know, can can stay moist and cooler and and change that micro environment. We really have this legacy of these really, really large fires here um, on the west side. And they are primarily due to those those big wind events that are, are rare, but they are a characteristic part of the meteorology and, and fire ecology here on the west side. Yeah, for sure. So can we expect these types of fires in our lifetimes again? You know, the potential is is always there as long as those those east winds happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's expected that they will continue on into the future as they have in the past. And so it's really a question of whether or not there are fires burning or ignitions when they when they happen, certainly we haven't had a large one, um, mm-hmm. you know, since the 50s there and the Tillamook burns. But, you know, as we learned in 2020, all it takes is is a couple ignitions and those strong east winds are just, there's there's nothing to stop them when, when fires get going. Mm-hmm. So how did the strong east winds fuel these fires as opposed to maybe strong west winds? Yeah, so most of the winds that we get here in the Pacific Northwest are you know, sort of off the Pacific Ocean. Mm-hmm. And these east winds are, are characteristic. The Pacific Northwest is not the only place where they happen. And there's probably the best known example are the Santa Ana winds in, in Southern California, where they're, they're actually very, very frequent. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you get are these strong pressure gradients on either side of the Cascades. And in this case, you know, cold Arctic air, high pressure air that came in and these pressure gradients that then force that dry air down the the west slopes of the Cascades, and they dry out and they accelerate as they move down slope. Um, and, and you know, in the case of 2020, I think lasted in some places for you know over 48 hours. If you think about some of the post 20 fire 2020 fire landscapes, where we have these large patches of high severity fire that are dominated by early cereal grasses and things that dry out. You know, the difference mm-hmm. between the temperature in, in one of those open post-fire environments versus what you see in an old growth forest is potentially on the magnitude of what we expect with climate change. You know, and so overnight mm-hmm. it can really change that microenvironment. And so the potential for reburns, we have the, the Tillamook burns as an example. Mm-hmm. And then the Yakult burn in 1902 was another one of these big fires. And I think the Yakult burn reburn 15 times in different oh, wow. areas in the next 50 years. So these mm-hmm. these big fires can really have potentially long-term influence on on what happens in the future. So Yeah, so it sounds like there's one major fire and then that creates a different, you know, vegetative ecology that's easier to catch on fire from there and then it's yeah. this cycle that, you know, kind of perpetuates itself. Yeah, and so eventually, you know, there's you get canopy closure and trees reestablish, and it, it shifts from that more fire-prone state to mm-hmm. a, a closed canopy forest and potentially stays a little bit moister and, and cooler. Fires that, you know, they're, they're part of, of ecosystem and, and forest dynamics, and they play mm-hmm. an important ecological role. They create what we call early cereal habitats. Mm-hmm. And so, 
They're rich in biological legacies, things like big old trees that might have survived and snags, dead trees and, and downed wood. And there are, you know, lots of species, plant and animal species that have evolved with fire and really depend Mm -hmm. depend on it as as habitat and you know on the west side here where our forests are very productive it's it's fairly ephemeral so as a stage of forest development your early cereal habitat might only last 25 or, or 50 years before a tree's established and the canopy closes mm -hmm. um, whereas old growth can persist for you know four or six six hundred years or longer wow um, so it's a it's a it's a unique component of biodiversity. And you know, in terms of salvage logging, it's it's uh, it's a values trade-off. Everyone has their mm -hmm. different perspective on salvage logging. If you love black pack woodpeckers, mm -hmm. which are a cavity nester, um, yeah. really dependent on dead trees, salvage logging is not good for your your favorite animal's habitat. Mm -hmm. um, if you're a private landowner, mm -hmm. right, and you're depending on that for some revenue or potentially to put your kids through college one day it's mm -hmm. it's an integral part of of how you make ends meet and you know certainly dead trees pose hazards yeah <laughs> you know and so they can fall and so it's a really important tool potentially for fuels management after fires and increasing accessibility through roads and things like that so it's a very it's a very controversial issue but there's mm -hmm. there's trade-offs and really multiple perspectives on it Late in 2021, um, a book was published that culminates the knowledge and expertise from over 70 experts on forest fire ecology and management across the U.S. Matthew here with me today was the lead scientist for the Pacific Northwest region, where they discuss the past, present, and future of forest fires in light of climate change. It was really neat to work with meteorologists and fire managers and ecologists and folks with civil cultural perspectives and really try and, and bring that together into a single story that was approachable, you know, not only by scientists, but hopefully by managers and, mm -hmm. and even the public in some cases. There was a consensus in this book that the Pacific Northwest as a whole, it will experience less forest fire in the last three decades than would be expected under historical conditions. Are you able to elaborate on that? Sure, yeah. And I think, you know, it's when I tell people this, people's people's jaws drops, right? You know, our, mine did when I yeah, read that. <laughs> and so our perspectives are very much driven by our experiences and the places we see. And if you drive over San Ian Pass towards Sisters, mm -hmm. there's been several large fires there mm -hmm. in that in that landscape and they leave a lasting memory. But when you when you zoom out to a regional scale, um, mm -hmm. You know, historically on the east side, we had fires potentially every five to, to 25 years, and some of them were really, really large. Mm -hmm. um, here on the west side, we're learning more about that. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't just have these high-severity wind-driven fires. There were other more mixed-severity fires that may have happened every 50 to 75 years. And it really is, you know, fire management, the the Forest Service and ODF, they do a tremendous job at, mm -hmm. at putting out fires when they start to protect resources and and people and things like that. And so when you when you zoom out, there is far less fire than there would have been historically, especially on the mm -hmm. east side. Yeah. Although that's changing very, very quickly. Why it's is that changing? changing? Very, really, well, I think it's it's climate change for yeah. sure. And um, you know, the work that I did where we sort of stumbled upon that, wow, there's, there's <laughs> actually less fire here than we would have expected historically. Mm -hmm. 
it, it's that was maybe published five years ago, and I feel like it's outdated already because we've had these series of large, large fires, and mm. uh, things can change very, very quickly. You know, yeah. California, a million acre fire, mm-hmm. um, and so we have a novel fire regime here in the Pacific Northwest, and you know, fires may not be as frequent or burn as much area on um, an annual basis when you when you zoom out to that scale, but they are having um, extraordinary changes at landscape scales and changing the, the landscapes that we live in and recreate. And a lot of those places will never look the same yeah. know, in our lifetime. One of those changes you mentioned earlier is the relationship between the east wind events and potential for ignition, actually starting fire. I suppose the winds without any ignition don't necessarily pose a threat. Oh, yeah, for sure. So it's certainly a complicated relationship, and it's really only exacerbated by things like drought, precipitation changes, and increased temperatures. So how can scientists understand that relationship and study how it'll shift with climate change? Yeah, and Mm -hmm. so these these dry east wind events like we had in 2020, they're characteristic of the the meteorology here. And Mm -hmm. back in the the 50s, and this must have come out of some of the early 20th century fires and the Tillamook burns, but there was a researcher who went up to the Portland airport and Owen Kramer was his name. And what he did was he harvested all the data that they had been collecting for Mm -hmm. several decades from these weather balloons that they would send up into the upper atmosphere on relative humidity and wind speed and in wind direction. And what he did was he, he very simply came up with a threshold for wind speed and relative humidity and just started looking at you know, when these wind events are most likely to happen. Mm -hmm. And we really have a very specific window of vulnerability here in the Pacific Northwest. These winds are very, very rare prior to about Mm mid-August. And then they really ramp up um, late August and especially early September. And so, you know, they can can happen during this this window of vulnerability. And Mm -hmm. most of the big fires that we've had here on the west side correspond with... um, early September. And so it's it's really an important time to be very conscious about where we're having fires or barbecues on Labor Day. And um, it's difficult to predict exactly when they're going to happen mm-hmm. in terms of on an annual scale, but there are tools that have been developed that can, you know, predict them a couple weeks out. And paying attention to those is going to be <laughs> really, really important to avoid fires like that here in the future. Well, one of the the big issues, particularly on the east side, where high severity fires were were not very common, we actually have very mm-hmm. little evidence of some of these really large high severity fires in our dry Ponderosa pine forests. Mm-hmm. And one of the big management concerns there are these large patches of of high severity fire. So, you know, um, two or five thousand acres, they're going to leave a very lasting imprint on those landscapes and. You know, it's it's not rocket science, but, you know, the acorn doesn't fall far from the tree, <laughs> right? And so seeds need to disperse. If there's none of these biological legacies, you have issues with seeds having to disperse into these really, really large patches. And so the mm-hmm. seeds need to get there. And then as we have increasing drought and harsher conditions, particularly at, at lower elevations, there's a lot of concern for what ecologists refer to as type changes. And so, so places... 
Yeah, so a place, yeah, that, that's a type yeah, a place <laughs> that once um, was an old growth forest and is now mm-hmm. transformed into a meadow or a shrubland. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, places where we don't see successful conifer regeneration. Mm-hmm. And so one of the, the big concerns for that, there's a lot of work on post-fire regeneration. And a lot of it shows that there are a fair fair amount of seedlings coming back. But these short interval reburns. So fires mm-hmm. that happen really, really quickly back to back, they can, you know, eliminate any of those residual live trees. But if there is successful regeneration there, they can consume that as well. And so I worked, mm-hmm. I worked in a, this was a relatively small fire down in Northern California, maybe 5,000 acres or so, but there had been a series of, of two short-term repeated fires. And, mm-hmm. you know, in 15 years from that first fire till we went out there, it went from, you know, dense old growth habitat to mm-hmm. essentially a meadow that had been converted to annual grasses and, and forbs and things like that. So, yeah, lots of concern about that these days. Yeah. So why is that concerning? Well, you know, if if we want to mitigate climate change and keep forests out there on the landscape and sequester carbon, mm-hmm. um, getting trees back in the ground to do that is is very very important. We also have lots of forest dependent species, mm-hmm. you know, and we need to provide habitat. And so, you know, early cereal habitat creation and even some of these short interval reburns could have maintained early cereal habitats for longer in, in some places and potentially created meadows and things like that at small scales. But there's a lot of concern about the, the scale and the size at which that's that's happening now. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I always hear plant a tree, save the planet. <laughs> this sounds exactly right up that alley. There's large-scale reforestation efforts going on to, mm-hmm. to replant these forests that we've lost and... Um, you know, one of the the big hurdles is just the scale at which these fires are, are happening and mm-hmm. the amount of acres that needs to be replanted. And if you think about, you know, if we had a, you know, a consistent creation or loss of forest and we had to replant 10,000 acres every year, it'd be pretty easy to plan for. Maybe that's mm-hmm. pretty easy. It's probably an overstatement. <laughs> but you could at least logistically come up with a plan to say we need this many seedlings per year and, mm-hmm. you know, this is what we'll do. But when you have, you know, a million acre fires and 80 or 90,000 acre fires even, and they're, they're unpredictable. There's a, there's a shortage of seedlings. And um, so there's a lot of logistics mm-hmm. that go into planning and reforestation. And the planning part just seems like a really, really difficult thing. You know, not yeah. knowing what you were going to mm-hmm. need for your resources for the next couple of years and, and just really, really hard to plan for. I think these days everybody has seen a fire at this point. Mm -hmm. It's a different perspective or observation on how it's affected their place, a favorite place to recreate or Mm -hmm. whatever. Yeah, for sure. Unfortunately, fire is or is going to become uh, part of everyone's lives. Yeah, I'm just really thankful that folks like Matthew are out there fighting the good fight. Definitely. And with that, uh, that's all from Third Pod from the Sun. Thanks so much, Jessica, for bringing us this story and to Matthew for sharing his work with us. This episode was produced by Jessica with audio engineering from Colin Warren. Artwork by Jay Steiner. 
We'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast. Please rate and review us, and you can find new episodes on your favorite podcasting app or at thirdpodfromthesun.com. Thanks all, and we'll see you next week. What does he say coming out of this? Have you ever have you ever been in an area with forest fires? Um, I guess well, land fires. I don't think you'd call them forest fires. So I grew up in the Meadowlands in New Jersey, and there was often there were often fires in the Meadowlands oh, growing up. And I'm not sure why. Actually, I never really thought about it. I don't know if it was dry or if it was, there's like a lot of industry there, like what caused it or what exasperated it. Yeah. Um, Exasperated? Exasperated. Exasperated. It doesn't matter. You know what I mean. Exacerbated? Exacerbated. Exacerbated.